Hey, Legionaries. Warwick here with a cold open real quick. Our guest Lucas was a blast to have around, but unfortunately we lost a little bit of his audio during editing. It's no big deal. It's just his intro where he introduces himself and a little bit about the discussion where units from 30k and 40k overlap for Adeptus Mechanicus. Not a big deal. I just wanted you guys to be aware of that. I'm going to fix as much as I can in post and enjoy the episode. Welcome, Legionaries, to episode 18, Hobby Roundtable 7. I am your host, Warwick, and joining me is my brother, Maniple. Say hi. Well, hello, everybody. Greetings, fellow Longbeards. Remember your grudges. And our other usual, Paul. Say what's up. Yeah, thanks for having me back on, guys. And joining us is a new guest because we are Sans Brandon this week. And say hi, Lucas. Right on. So we got some pretty awesome topics. We're going to be talking the hobby update as usual. Got a little bit of Horus Heresy news, nothing too spectacular, but Imperial Fist players and Sons of Horus players might be a little happy. We'll see. Lucas is going to fill us in on the Taking a Ferex event at Adepticon and tell us about a few more events to come. We'll then be plundering the vaults, talking about narrative campaigns. Maniple's got a big section on that. And for our Fulgrim's Quest, we're going to be talking board and terrain. Let's uh, go around the horn here and talk about uh, what's on our hobby table. I've come into the end of my infantry that I've been working on. I got 22 blue boys sitting right here that I just need to do the metalwork and bases on them. And, well, on 10 of them. I need to do the metal work on. And then I need to re-examine what I'm doing for basing. I'm not, I know we talked about that in the last hobby round table, but I'm not happy with how my polymer bases turned out. So I'm going to re-examine all of that. And then I'm going to be on to some dreadnoughts and working on some Adeptus Titanicus Titans because uh, Martin Emery's last uh, Fires of Betrayal podcast really kind of kicked my butt in gear to get going on Titanicus again. So I'm excited for that. Manipal, what have you been working on? Well, I meant to get back into my Alpha Legion, but a whole pile of orcs are still sitting on my table here. Since the beginning of the first of the year, I've painted over 200 of my old orc infantry, but I'm now working on a few orc bikers. Those are almost done. If I get a couple more vehicles done, I can put a pin in my orc army for a while. And I do have some Alpha Legion on the table. I'm going to work on my uh, Terminators, my Lernians. And I think I can. I have enough bits where I can convert five more Lernians from some base Cataphracty and some uh, other bits I found to flesh out that squad. And when, when I'm working on those, I'll work on Alpharius at the same time. Now, on a side note, one of my other buddies here locally is working on an Adeptus, Titanic, uh, Adeptus Mechanicus list for 40K. Since you guys are more, might be more expert on this than I am, how many of the current line of Mechanicus models are also 30k usable? And can you make a 30k army out of a 40k army? Yeah, uh, to some extent, there's a pretty good amount of crossover. Most of the infantry can be converted or used. Uh, some of the tanks might be a little weird. I can't remember specifically off the top of my head if any of the flyers and tanks transfer over, but... Most of the infantry are good. So if I was going to 
make a 30k list is my and i'm gonna make one forge world order just to get started would it be some of those castle X robots and try to get just a good selection of those and then sprinkle in some infantry and maybe a, a knight or something yeah, that's a problem with this podcast is I start making a list of things I need to get on eBay and Forge World, and then <laughs> tomorrow morning I wake up and realize what I've done. Thanks for the advice. That that sounds really cool. For me, I'm just getting a lot of uh, AT terrain put together. Uh, Brandon is actually setting up a AT event here in about a month or so. Um, I'm going to be providing one of the tables. So he's having me get all the terrain and I got some battle mats together to bring to the event. So get that all squared away before everyone starts. Sure. So um, Very cool. Lucas, I've been working on terrain. I've been working on horse heresy terrain. Well, like, you know, just regular terrain. Um, I've been working on some death ray designs like uh, cyberpunk kind of inspired buildings, a double table of that. So that'll make two six by fours. So uh, we'll get into it a little bit later, but, Post Adepticon, one of the things, along with my partners that helped me run, I just jump right back into it. That's that's basically all I was working on is that that double table. Despite having a whole storage unit of stuff as well as my hobby space and everything else, uh, I still keep buying stuff for some reason. So you know, it's it's a never it's an ongoing, a never ending process. I'm working on for my army. I'm working on Night Lords right now. Not quite completely started yet, but I've bought everything I need for them. Out of all the army lists I've written, I'm still kind of like playing around with it. I have not included a single vehicle, so it's absolutely infantry and jump. And I've uh, I've played I've included some dreadnoughts in some of them, and then some speeders and like basically I'm trying to stay away from armor value uh, for two reasons. I've been playing really he armor heavy dark angels for like a while now. And it's a little bit of a gameplay mechanic as well, where like if you don't have any armor, your enemy's anti-tank weapons are not very useful. So it's kind of a two, you know, kind of a double-edged thing right there. I'm tired of painting tanks, basically. We're gonna paint some dudes. Well, yeah, that's part of the heresy news that we'll be getting into here in a minute. Is that we've been on a glut of tanks for months and months now. It feels like be nice to get some more yes. infantry in there, wouldn't it? So speaking of that, let's roll into the armor announcements for the past couple of weeks. We did get the big update that we're going to keep a couple of these resin hulls. I think there's four or five of them, including a couple of the super heavies. We're going to be getting plastic sponsons. So that'll save you like, what, 10 minutes of work of sorting out bent resin pieces that you're going to have to soak in hot water and bend back into shape. But the... The new tank commanders I'm a little more excited about because the, the models do look really cool. They're very Legion-specific, but I think they're neat. The advanced reactions you're getting with them are kind of interesting to me as well. What are your guys' thoughts on it, Maniple? Why don't you go ahead? Yeah, they're Legion-specific, but I don't think they'd be hard to convert to something else. You know, it's just a matter of filing off some iconography, putting your own stuff on there. You know, paint can do wonders. So I... I looked at those right away and thought they'd look pretty good on just about any tank, especially the guy with the big rotary cannon. I think it looks awesome. Love it. Yeah, I mean, it goes in my favor since I'm already a Sons of Horus player. Uh, I am interested to see what that banner is going to be about um, because they only tease the rules for the Imperial Fist side of things. So we'll have to wait and see if that's going to be some sort of command tank that can have some sort of leadership buff or what that does. I thought it was interesting they gave him a heavy bolter. Um, as opposed to 
really any other Sponson weapon, but I mean, I'll take what I can get, I suppose. Yeah, I think the thing that's rough about that, you were talking about the rotary cannon, is that's a pencil assault cannon and only two legions can use it, right? So that it's kind of like, mm, yeah, it's cool. I love it. Pentel minty pentel minigun is awesome, but it's a little limited. So I don't know. I didn't really look that closely at the text for the rules preview, right? But I think it says you can fire the pentel. It's an advanced reaction where you can fire your pentel weapon twice, but you can't fire the turret, even if the turret is defensive. That doesn't really make sense to me, but but they've been wrong. You know, the, the, the Warhammer community previews have been not perfect before. So we'll see what actually comes out in the book and kind of make our judgment based on that. Yeah, so I've got it pulled up here. So the short version is any defensive weapon that's fired as part of this reaction that's not a turret, that are not turret mounted, can fire double, twice their shots. So turret can still fire, but it only fires its regular amount of shots. And then it has the... Template weapons fire using Wall of Death. Barrage weapons can't fire as defensive. That sort of thing. So it's like a slightly buffed Overwatch for tanks. Just letting them fire their pintle mounted so double the rate. If you put him... I mean, we don't know what he can go in, right? We don't know if he, he's like limited to the armored spearhead, right? Where he can like only go in a Predator or a Sakaran. But if you can put him like in a... Just as an example, in a Saber... It could shoot all of its guns because it doesn't have a turret. I'm not sure. We'll see what, we'll, well, like I said, we'll see more when it comes out. I'm sure that they've thought about stuff like this. I hope they have. Yeah, I'm definitely excited to get my hands on that book. It looks really interesting. Uh, we haven't gotten any more levers or anything for a while now, so it will be very cool to see what we get there. Right on. So, Lucas, why don't you take it away? Sure. So, um, I'll just kind of preface it with uh, what the Taking of Ferrix is, and then we'll go into Adepticon. So the Taking of Ferrix is a narrative event series that has been running since 2017 in the Midwest, um, done events in Oklahoma, Kansas. I, we never actually made it to Texas, which is kind of weird, but whatever. Um, it was started by my friend David Komen, uh, who unfortunately passed away December of last year very suddenly. And so me and a couple of the other, like, uh, Phyrixians, the guys that have been to a bunch of his events, decided to, we were going to continue it on in his name. So, um, kind of in his memory. So we, he was already signed up to run Adepticon 2023. So we decided that, yeah, we're going to go ahead and do it. We didn't, two things, we wanted to make it as, you know, as good as we possibly could kind of to honor him. And um, we didn't want to leave them high and dry. Because, you know, Adepticon has traditionally been the largest gathering of Horus Heresy players in at least North America. But I'm not sure if... It, I think it might be the largest in the world. I'm not sure. Um, we had about, I think, just under 200 individual players. Uh, that's across all events. So there's... It's not like, you know, at Warhammer World or whatever, they have, like, one event that has, like, 170 or 160 players. It's not like that. It's like, I think there's a roster of 10 events you can participate in. So that'd be across all of those events. So not just a single event. But we ran um, kind of traditionally how they've done it at Adepticon is they've kind of had like a two si The room has been split in two sides and they'll have like a narrative uh, linked narrative campaign 
that'll be like a three day thing. And then it'll could have like maybe night portions. We did night portions, but we'll go into that like evening portions. And then there'll be the other half. And the other half is really cool because it's just one off events. Like they did one this year called attrition and it's just a one day event and you start with 2,500 points and then you play a game and then you're a force like has to go down to 2000 and then go down to 1500 for the third game. So it's just a standalone. It's still narrative. I'm not trying to say that they're not narrative, but it's not linked to anything else. They did a little bit of linking between their events, but not to the level that we did. That's kind of our focus was that almost like if you have ever been to like an event weekend where you'll have like a Friday game and those will go into Saturday and go into Sunday. That's what we tried to do. So um, that's what we did. So we had three days. Uh, we did Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Um, in the we had like a morning and an evening slot. In the mornings we did three thousand point frontline games, which if you're not familiar with the terminology, is just regular three thousand point games with like no list restrictions, as opposed to Centurion or Zomortalis or even like a maybe like an armor battle or whatever. We actually didn't have any restrictions on the forces you could bring or anything like that. We figured that. We know that there's some abusive stuff out there and maybe even stuff that doesn't fit quite narratively with what we're trying to do. But we figured that the largest event for Horse Heresy, at least in North America, needed to play the game as it was meant to be, as it was written, at least one time before we started to kind of throw all this other stuff into the mix and like be like, well, this is too good, so we're going to ban it. In my opinion... Banning something that's too good just makes something else good, really, kind of. You you start to mess with the meta, and you start to get the next thing just rises to the top, because now it doesn't have that to compete with. So that's kind of how I feel about it. So we didn't ban anything. The only restrictions we had on what you could bring was there was only going to be one of each named character or Primarch available to the entire player pool at any given time. So if you were playing in day one and not day two or three, you could claim, for example, Fulgrim, but no one else could play Fulgrim. We used Facebook to facilitate that. Um, honestly, it was a nightmare, and we probably won't ever do that again. Um, <laughs> it was just a nightmare to facilitate. It, it yeah, it took, it, it just, it was impossible to police, basically. So uh, that was kind of what we did there. What's up, Manipal? So you talked about, chasing the meta which feels like the um current 40k is constantly doing that and the meta is always changing with a game like horus heresy because all the army lists have been revealed at once is it somewhat meta proof because everybody's there and we're not getting this rapid release cycle or do you see that that can still be as abusive as other games have i don't really think it's abusive necessarily but it definitely does have like a um there's definitely a cycle I don't know how most of you most of y'all started playing in 2.0, right? Like you guys didn't really play 1.0 that much. Yeah, I played a couple of games. Okay, so I was really I was really present in 1.0. I've been playing since 2000, I think 16, 15, something like that. So you saw this like very much, and it was different back then because of new stuff was coming out. Like like you said, where like everything was released at once, so it is a little bit different now. But you saw this like clear kind of cycle where like people bought. Uh, Primarchs, and then they bought the Spartan, and then they everybody was putting the Primarchs with the Death Star and the Spartan, and then everyone started playing, not everyone, but like a large amount of people started playing that, 
So then a bunch of people started playing how to kill the Spartan in turn one or two or whatever. And then you almost saw the Spartan disappear because it was too much of a liability because you were going to run into drop pod veterans or you're going to run into a lightning strike fighter or whatever. So with first edition as compared to second edition, I know it's a little bit different because uh, we had like the release schedule of first where you know you had stuff coming out constantly and that is a lot better in second edition where you um don't have you don't always have like new stuff coming out it all came out kind of at one time and every kit they've come out with has basically just been a re-release of an old kit there's only really been the kratos it's different so that's kind of nice but you almost had like this cycle you saw it where like everybody got the pr- everybody got their primark and then everybody put him with his terminators in the spartan and then, like, tons of people were running big Spartan Death Stars. And then you saw the rise of everyone figuring out how they killed the Spartan in turn one or turn two. And so you saw people bringing, like, uh, like vet squads in termites or vet squads in pods with guns that blew up the Spartan in the first turn or, you, or the second turn or whatever. Or you saw, like, the lightning strike fighter or you saw, like, um, Admet or Mechanicum could do, like, a haywire spam kind of thing that they brought out that, that was, like a guaranteed kill on the Spartan. So, but then you saw people get rid of the Spartan and they would deliver their item in some other way that was like much more, much less vulnerable. And so I definitely think there is like a meta, but it comes in cycles, I think. And I think we're kind of seeing that with 1.0 or 2.0 as well, because like in the very beginning, I think a lot of people were like, Oh, we got to, you know, fury, the ancients, this fury, the ancients, that. And I think that that's almost, it's like, I don't want to say it's gone, but we, just as a spoiler for our event, we had no people playing Fury of the Ancients. For We had 50 players per day. We had no people playing Fury. The only guy I saw playing Fury was one guy in the tag teams, which is like a big team event, the doubles event. And I only think there was one guy playing Fury of the Ancients. So it's 200 players. We'll call it, we'll call it 200. I think the actual number is like 180-something. But... Uh, and only one guy was playing it. Whereas a couple months ago, that's all anybody was talking about as like the most powerful thing or whatever. But I think it also speaks to Horus Heresy players are not necessarily always looking for the most powerful thing. They, they want like a strong, a lot of us want a strong army that like can hold its own and is a good general all comers army. But I find that a lot of people are much more worried about like is something thematic or they're at least as equally as worried about does it fit with the theme and like does it make sense as is it good necessarily. So I I like that. That's one of my favorite things about Horse Heresy, honestly, is like the community is really great about policing themselves. So overall. again about the Adepticon, how did you decide on which scenarios you were gonna use and were the players happy with the the schedule of the events? Did you feel like there was too many at one time talk a little bit about the nuts and bolts of how it played i don't think that there were too many things going on at once basically like i said there was like a we'll call it like a daytime and a nighttime slot so the daytime slots ran from a.m to 4 p.m and the nighttime slots ran from 5 p.m to midnight um although i don't know if really every not everything at least the stuff we ran didn't run all the way to midnight like that was how much time we had but a lot of it was done by like 10 30 um so I don't really think that there was too much going on because we completely sold out everything and then expanded it and completely sold out all of that. So people obviously like 
wanted all the different formats and all of that. You know what I mean? There, there was nothing that was like we offered that wasn't all either full or almost full. So as far as missions go, I can't speak to what they did on the other side of the room with uh, Dan Dusek and Zach Paget. They're cool dudes. They're from the Horse Heresy Accountability Buddies podcast. They ran everything on the other side that was the more one-off events, as well as uh, Alex from Death and Betrayal, the Edmonton guy. He ran the Beta Garmin finale of the Beta Garmin campaign. So I can't speak to what they did for their missions. I was far too focused on what we were taking care of to really go over there and nitpick their missions. But on our side, we had 25 tables, and we did a custom mission for every table and just left. It was just one mission on the table. We didn't change the missions for the rounds. I don't think you can honestly come up with... We would have had to have, how many is that? 150 unique missions if we wanted to change every round. I don't think that's really feasible. So we just had one mission for every table, basically. We had 25 missions, one mission. We had one mission per for every table. And so we didn't, um, we didn't switch the missions out for the different tables. So you had one mission was on the table all weekend. So we figured that players were not going to... They got to pick their tables, basically. So they weren't going to come back and play at the same table they already played at by choice. So we didn't really feel like that was going to negatively impact their play experience to just have the mission attached to the table. And then uh, as far as, you know, they're not going to play it more than once. So it's it's all custom, all custom missions. We figured that we didn't change them from round to round. We figured coming up with 150 custom missions is basically impossible. That's how many we would have had to have. There just isn't that many different things you can even do in the game, basically. Like, they're all going to feel the same if you try to come up with that many custom missions. So that's kind of how we did it. Um, the pairings, we did the pairings where we just had loyalists line up on one side and traders line up on the other side. And if you line whoever you lined up across from is who you fought. So if you wanted to play against somebody, you line up across from them. If you don't want to play against somebody, you don't line up across from them. And if you don't care, you just line up across from whoever and then you get paired at the end. So it doesn't I felt like that worked really smooth and that it doesn't require the use of a spreadsheet. And finally, I guess the last question is if if somebody is just a casual prayer player, would they still have a good time at this, or does it cater more towards the competitive side of I would actually say quite the opposite that this event is designed for these, all of these events are designed for the casual player. Oh, I don't know if casual is the right word. Many of these guys are very invested in their army and like it's painted to the absolute top tier, highest standards. Like they go all out. They bring display boards and little fluff pieces that they've written and little trinkets to give to their opponents and everything you could possibly imagine. They, you know, they go all out. Some of these guys do. So I don't think casual is the right word, I guess, but it's definitely not competitive. There's nothing about it that's a tournament. There's no, pair, like I said, no pairings. There's no Swiss system. There's no none of that for any of the events, not just mine. Um, the closest thing we had to competitive was the team event, which is kind of weird. Normally you'd think teams is kind of a uh, off format, not really a competitive format. But that was the place that we saw the probably the hardest list was in the team tournament or the team. Um, it's called tag teams is what they called it. So, but definitely it is not competitive. There were guys running, you know, 
like I said, nobody was running Pure the Ancients. I'm not saying that these are necessarily competitive, but nobody was running Custodes. Nobody was running Sisters of Silence. One Night Household player. Like, it just wasn't... It, it was definitely theme over competitiveness. Um, and that's how we wanted it. That's what the event is billed as. Is definitely like, this is a narrative event, and your force should attempt, at least attempt, to slot into the narrative that we've written. And which I want to talk about in a second. Did you have something else to say, no, Manifold? I think, uh, you, I think you've sold me on going to Adepticon and trying out this kind of event. That sounds really fun. I'm always worried about going into these events and getting... Because I have been to tournaments in the past where I just showed up with a fluffy list and gotten crushed. And then the guys right. are laughing at me across the table and thought, well, you're clearly not understanding what I'm bringing here. You know, I I, I bring these armies because they're because they're funny. Uh, and uh, going to a place like this where I can really jump into the fluff aspect, that, that sounds a lot more interesting to me. So cool. Thanks, man. I think that that would fit right in. Absolutely. At any, I would honestly say any Horus Heresy event. Like I really, I have never been to a Horus Heresy event that was billed as competitive. Um, not only because I don't really want to, but because it's simply not available. There really aren't any. I mean, they've done some in the UK, like at Warhammer World and stuff where they do like a, uh, what is it? Throne of Skulls or whatever. But even that is pretty low key. I think, I don't think that, you know, it's not, it's not crazy like LVO or even the event. The 30k event at LVO isn't a tournament. They had a tournament, but the main event is not a tournament. So I, I think you'd feel right at home there. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the narrative itself. I kind of mentioned, like, you know, you're supposed to kind of slot your force into the narrative. So um, hopefully I'll be able to link this in the show notes, but we have a link tree, which is like a website where it gathers all of our stuff in one place. And on this link tree, we have a audio basically like an audio drama that narrates the ferrix narrative so it starts you out in the ferrix system and like how the ferrix system was discovered and the previous events in the ferrix system and what the outcome of those was and how they're affecting what we're playing today then it gives you an introduction to what we did at adepticon which was we were fighting over the planet of nazar which has a giant orbital called station upsilon the legions have named it station upsilon so um, I hadn't even gotten into that. I had really just talked about the 3K, you know, frontline games. But we also had evening portions where we played Zone Mortalis. So we have what we call the Mega ZM. We have an 18-foot Zone Mortalis. Um, it's quite the spectacle to behold. And we did an 8v8 Zone Mortalis. So it was 2,000 points per player, 8 players on each side. The first night we actually had 9 players on each side. And the second night we only had 7 but we ran that twice, and the coolest thing about that is, like I said, it's quite the spectacle to see all these guys playing Zone Mortalis. That's really fun. Um, I've also got pictures of all that on our link tree, so if you guys want to check that out, you can head over there. And we let players, um, basically they had a team, like a general for their team, and the general would let one player could deep strike their entire army, one player could outflank their entire army, and one player could infiltrate their entire army, and that was kind of to get the game going a little bit faster, because we have all these guys playing at Zomertiles at once. And I think it really worked out. I think how we did it was really great. And in the Zomertiles, you actually had objectives that you could capture that affected the big games as well there was everyone's favorite the orbital defense gun right that everybody loves where you get to shoot at the big tables that's always fun there was one called the archaeotech research facility 
And I'll go into what that did in a minute because I haven't actually even talked about the points of interest system that we were using, but that interacted with that. And then there was another one. There was, um, oh man, you're going to make me remember what the third one was. Anyways, there was another objective that uh, interacted with all of the tables for the next day. So whoever was holding that Zomortalis object, not just the table in general, but that objective in particular would be able to use that to influence the big battles in the next day. So I'll just touch on the points of interest system. We could talk all day about the points of interest. It's quite an in-depth thing, but basically it's like these little markers and we had three to five markers on every table. And when your infantry or cavalry comes and takes one of the little markers, you know, whether they, they just walk up to it and they touch it base-to-base -base contact, they get to bring it up to the EO table. They actually pick up the marker and bring it up there and they get to trade it in for either a piece of Archaeotech or an NPC. So the pieces of Archaeotech are generally like one-use items. So like I said, I don't know how familiar you guys are with the 1.0 stuff, but there was a thing called Psy Arcana, and then there was Relics of the Dark Age of Technology and stuff like that. So a lot of them are pieces of pieces of war gear like that. So like uh, an example, uh, one of the ones is called the Nanite Blaster. So the Nanite Blaster is like a replicant gun. So it shoots like these little nanobots that kill a guy and then jump to another guy and kill that guy and then jump to another guy and kill that guy until they can't kill the next guy. So that's one of the items, just for example. So uh, that was cool. We had 22 different Archaeotech items that you got to draw randomly. And then we had a pool of NPCs. And so these NPCs, you actually checked out a model from us. So we have a model, at least one model, representing all of these NPCs. Some of the NPCs are actually a unit of guys. You might get 20 guys that you get to check out and bring back to your table. Like one of them is called the Risen Dead, which is like a zombie horde. It's 20 guys. One of them is like a little thalax unit, so a little unit of three thalax that you get. But you can actually, some of the NPCs are actually hostile. So you draw them, and you have to give them to your opponent, and your opponent gets to play with them. So it's a really cool system, but the 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 thing I was talking about, the Archaeotech Research Facility, basically it lets you draw two cards and then pick one. So you got to kind of mitigate that risk of drawing the bad one. Or you got to pick up two of the cards that, and you got to pick whichever one you wanted. So it was really good. That system got a it it got great reviews from all the players. They really bought all in on the system. There was a lot of really cool narrative moments that came from that. Um, the score sheets actually have a section on them where the players can write down their like favorite narrative moment from their game. And whoever got whoever we thought had the coolest one actually got a prize in every round. So coming back to kind of what you had said, Manipal, where you were like, I don't know if I really fit in with it. You know, is it competitive? Well, there were no prizes for who got the most battle points or whatever. All of the prizes are for best painted or most thematic. We try not to just give away prizes for best painted, although painting is like obviously a big part of the hobby. We try to also give away prizes for like guys that have a lot of effort put in not necessarily it may not be the best technical painted army it may not be the golden demon winning army but that you can tell that they've gone like to the next level with how much effort they've put forward so we try to give away some prizes for that we gave away prizes for these cool narrative moments and then we gave away some sportsmanship prizes 
So that's kind of the vibe, if that's what you were talking about. Yeah, earlier. that sounds like an amazing event, and that would definitely have my interest for 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 the time at a con like that. I know I played in tournaments at Gen Con a long time ago, and I, it was not a fun experience for me at all. Like it, it wasn't like playing a game; it was like having your hand slapped every five seconds. So, the more narrative driven event sounds like much more fun than tournament play to me anyway. Uh, that was War Machine, though. I think wasn't it? Yes. <laughs> yes, War Machine competitive was a nightmare for me. I did not have fun. At I think all I was them. playing Malifaux at the time. I had a similar experience. Yeah, those ones. Uh, I mean, if if you really commit to it, are really good. But those can be some pretty rough games. Yeah, uh, th- there were there weren't were fun moments, but it, it's not like playing at your local hobby shop or playing a game with a buddy. It, it's just not my cup of tea. So where is where is Adepticon at? Adepticon is in Chicago. Yeah, I think that that would be an interesting uh, trip to make because I've heard for quite a while that Adepticon was the place to go to for uh, for games. So well, and for um, for the longest time, it was the only convention that I think Games Workshop was showing up to in America. So, and that's I think that's why we got like the big reveals this year is because it's. For the longest time, they weren't showing up at Gen Con, even though Gen Con was huge. Well, the but see, they, years... they were running their own tournaments, and then they stopped. Like, for many years, GW's doing nothing. And Adepticon was, like, the only place you could go to for 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 games, for competitive, you know, kind of ranked, the ranked system. Finally, GW came back, uh, not not really not that long ago, back into, this, into the system. Well, I think that they were... I think it was Mark II of War Machine made them compete again. So when they saw that these these big people were getting together in these big groups to talk about War Machine, GW said to themselves, you know, we need to get back into that ring. We're not the only show in town anymore. So they, that that right. really woke them yeah. up. And then Mark III War Machine took a nosedive. And... Well, but then uh, X-Wing was killing it too. X-Wing for a while was really knocking at GW's door for yeah. the number of games played and the number Absolutely. of models people are buying. I was heavy into X-Wing for a while. I mean, I love that game. V1. I never got into V2, though. Malifaux 2 for a skirmish game. Malifaux was really killing it there for a while. And I'm not sure what happened with Weird, but it seems like they dropped off the radar as well. And I know nope. Battle... They're still there. They're still running events. Well, I to the same degree, or do you think they've grown quite a bit? Because I, I know they petered out in my community quite a bit. And then Battletech has been, with Alpha Strike coming out, Battletech is picking up a ton of steam. And uh, p- people are talking about bat- Battletech again. And Catalyst is doing all the Kickstarters for all their new sets. They're looking great. So, Well, uh, Lucas, do you have any more on your event? So I just had one more thing I wanted to say. Um, we, if This Adepticon recap sounds like something that you would be interested in. You don't have to wait until next Adepticon. I will say... There is only one downside to Adepticon, and that is the registration process is very temperamental. Uh, It's hard to get into these events, which is frustrating. Now, one thing about that is we were able to accommodate every player that was standing there at 9 o'clock wanting to play, even those who did not have tickets. So if you don't get a ticket, you can still probably come and play. I can't promise it. But we were able to accommodate everyone this year, and that's how it's always been in the past. But you don't have to wait until Adepticon next year. We're running Phoenix at Midwest Conquest, which is Memorial Day weekend in Kansas City, Missouri. It's actually in Independence, Missouri. Those tickets are going to go live on April 15th, 
on best coast pairings. They will also be on our link tree. Obviously, that's what we use to kind of organize all of our stuff. I don't really have a lot of details right this minute ready to go for this event, but it's like I said, it's going to be $80. It's going to be Friday night, Saturday and Sunday, and it's going to be April. I'm sorry, May 26th through 28th Memorial Day weekend. And for you guys, you guys are going to love this. We're also running Ferex at Texas Open. That sounds awesome. We're running Ferex at Texas Open here in Dallas. That's in downtown Dallas. That's at the Hyatt Regency in, in downtown Dallas, which is like right by Reunion Tower, right? It's the hotel with Reunion Tower at it. So that is also going to be $80. It's going to be a Friday night, Saturday, and Sunday event. That is coming up August 11th through 13th. So tickets for that are actually already available. If you wanted to go and buy them, you can buy them on texasopen.org, I believe. But more details are coming soon. Don't expect any crazy, you know, new details to come out. Like the only thing we're going to be restricting is named and special characters. For these two events, we will not be allowing named and special characters. There's going to be an alternate system that we are going to be using in its place. So that's basically the only list restrictions. Uh, we're going to be playing 3,000 point frontline, and I think we decided to go with 2,000 points on Mortalis as well. But you don't have to play Zone Mortalis if you don't want to. So if you don't have that kind of army, you don't have to bring it. Exodus has no name, and he's not re- uh, restricted. Right, all the Alpha Legion. So you couldn't run an entire army. You couldn't run any Alpha Legion because they're all Alpharius. been great so far so why don't you give us that uh rundown on where to find you again and i'll make sure that it gets in the final cut sure so we have a link tree um it's basically like i said it's like where we gather all of our links in one place it's it's a website so it's link l-i-n-k-t-r dot e-e slash ferix which is spelled p-h-y-r-i-x so i can probably link that in you guys' show notes if you like we have a Discord, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, we're on pretty much anywhere you can find us. We actually just launched our YouTube where we're doing our podcast over on YouTube. It's just the Taking a Ferex podcast. So um, if you guys want to check us out over there, you can find you can basically find us there and then find everything else we have through that. So we're about to do a Discord giveaway, I think. We're going to do a 200% once our Discord reaches 200 members, we're going to do a giveaway. So I think we're at like 140 right now. So need a little bit of a membership drive and we'll get there. Um, But yeah, that'll let you find like all the pictures from Adepticon. If you want to check those out, there's like, I think there's 500 and something pictures. There's uh, also our audio narratives. I think that's actually something, I mean, it's really cool. You should go check it out if you're interested in that kind of thing. It's like an audio book. We had um, Baldermort from... YouTube. I don't know if you're familiar with Baldemort's Guide to Warhammer. We had him do our narration, and he did. He knocked it out of the park. He killed it. So that was awesome. But that's where you can find all of us. And then um, the tickets for Midwest Conquest are going to go live on Best Coast Pairings on April 15th, and the tickets for Texas Open are already live on their website, texasopen.org. Well, right on. Thanks for joining us, Lucas. Uh, sorry that your internet wasn't a little better for us tonight, but 
we hopefully we will be able to have you on in the future. This has been a blast. Very insightful. Glad that you joined us again. Definitely check out the Ferrix stuff, folks. And hopefully we'll see you in the future. The rest of us are going to continue on, but we're going to say goodbye to Lucas here because his internet is potato. Why don't uh, we all say goodbye? Yeah, thanks for coming on, man. We'll see you next time. Yeah, Lucas has some great information. Thanks. That was really informative. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. Um, I said we're just kind of making the rounds right now, and I really enjoyed your podcast, so I figured I'd come on. I'll see you guys next time. All right. Sad to see him go, but that's just the way it goes when your internet is potato. So that was our Remembrancer Amasek Hour. Sorry I didn't announce that at the beginning. Maybe I'll be able to fix it in post. But we're going to move on to Plundering the Vaults, talk about narrative campaigns, very similar to this last segment, we're talking about the Ferex campaign, or the Ferex event. But Maniple's put together quite a few resources to go over here, so why don't you take it away, brother? Okay, everybody. So I plundered the vaults and found some old books that were interesting, but again, you don't need to have the old books to um, find this stuff. Let me start by reiterating something that Lucas said, and that was to build your world first. If you're interested in having any kind of a narrative campaign, even if it's just with you and, and a buddy, or maybe your small local gaming group, sit down and figure out where your where your event is happening. Is it in a world in a star system on Holy Terra on you know the the Eldar Webway wherever you want to fight this at? Sit down and start writing out what this place is. So, for instance, you might take a system that you read about in one of the Horus Heresy books. And there's a planet that just gets a one-word mention. You can now enter the sandbox and say, okay, this world is a mining world, and they produce um, a whole bunch of iron, or or um, uh, they produce a ceramite plate, or something like that. And then it's got to have usually because it's 40k or 30k, it's got to have some kind of a dark secret, right? So. Underneath the planet, there is buried some ancient slumbering horror that nobody knows about. Maybe there's some kind of chaos cult that has developed there. Maybe the Alpha Legion or the Word Bearers were present 100 years ago and left something behind. Who knows? But figure out what your world is doing, what's its dark secret, and how does it fit into the larger narrative of the, the Horus Heresy. Then your campaign will start to almost write itself. And you'll say, okay, well, this is the why our armies might be there. If you know you have one player playing the, uh, the the Imperial Fists and another one is playing the Night Lords, you'd say, well, why would they be at this planet? Well, maybe the Imperial Fists are trying to get a whole load of, of Ceramite plate and the Night Lords are just there to stop them. Or maybe the Word Bearers are trying to uncover some, some artifact and the... Ultramarines are trying to prevent them from getting it. Once that happens, now you've got the ability to build the world. Is that If it's a mining facility, it's going to have a lot of industrial terrain. But maybe you decided it was a jungle world, and, and the, the jungles are going to now uh, show you what, what terrain you're going to build. That's also going to impact the sort of storyline or, or the, the battles you're going to play there. Maybe it's really focused on a large planetary strike that's coming down and the defenders are pushing it back. 
maybe they're already on planet and they're fighting a grinding uh, siege over some some factorium. Maybe they're just sending small groups to explore a bunch of ruins. And now you're like, well, I, I can then select the sort of battles we want to play. And you also want to make sure that you're not setting your sights too high. If you can get four games in, that is a, a rousing success for any campaign. I think the last time I tried to do a campaign with some of my local buddies, we were going to do eight battles. The player who had the most games had six before we all went our separate ways and started doing other things. So if you can just sit down and say, we're going to do a simple campaign of three or four, set out the scenarios you want to play, and then you're going to be able to you know, fill out a whole month of time because maybe you only get to game once a week. But in that week, you're going to, everybody's going to paint a new unit or they're going to produce a piece of terrain. And by the end of that month, you're going to have four battles played. You're going to have four new units. And you're probably going to have some nice terrain that you didn't have before. So where might you look for some inspiration for that? Well, I'll get into some of the books here in a minute. But uh, Warwick or Paul, what do you think about the world building aspect of some kind of a narrative? Is that important for you guys? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a, a major part especially if you telling a narrative, the story is required. So setting the stage, painting a picture is very key to what you're doing. Because if, if you're all showing up and just playing games, well, it's just a regular game night. But if you're committing resources to tell a story, that's a whole different kind of commitment to, to the gaming experience. Yeah, definitely. Without the story, it's just a tournament. Having that world building fleshed out is really the thing that makes a narrative campaign what it is. So some of the books that I pulled out were an old series from Warhammer. This is for 40K, but there were a couple little expansions they did, probably around, was that 5th or 6th edition? Planet Strike and Cities of Death are the two I have with me. Cities of Death really fleshed out the rules for fighting among ruins, urban warfare, and creating fighting when, when there's a lot of cover. So when that happens, it's usually going to limit a lot of long-range shooting, like your last cannons. Um, tanks might not be as useful if there's a lot of difficult terrain for them to get through. It's going to then focus more on infantry. So if you decide, hey, I'm going to do a Cities of Death campaign, you're going to be selecting battles and terrain features that are going to limit some aspect of the game and focus on something else. So that might really also change the sort of army list that you're going to build. Now, City Fight was cool because it did have different sizes of missions. And because of the era this comes from, porting this into Horus Heresy is not going to be that hard. A lot of the, the terminology, uh, I think, can, can be used fairly simply. It did introduce in these books the idea of stratagems. Well, modern 40k players might hear the word stratagem and, and roll their eyes because that's been a bone of contention for many people that they feel unbalances the game. But in a more simple form, as they're presented here, I don't think it's really that big of a deal. And in your own campaign, you can just set up maybe four or five different stratagems that are going to be available during the course of the campaign. You get to use it one time in one battle, and at the right time, it might be just the thing that you need. So what it did was it tied some of these stratagems to the buildings themselves. So it made the buildings a lot more important than just blocking line of sight. It, you wanted to get to that building, do something with it, interact with it, 
And so the buildings now became more of a part of the, the campaign as much as your individual units. And the scenarios that are in here are set up specifically for around using a lot of buildings. And this is going to expand the basic missions that are in the, the Horus Heresy book. And I know there are a lot of other scenarios out there that can be found, but this gives you a good idea of how to, to um, set some of them up. What you might want to do is sit down with the other people that are playing and say, these are the scenarios that I'm thinking about. Let them offer commentary on it because the scenario you think is awesome, they might look at and say, well, that's, that's ridiculous. Uh, that's not going to work at all for us. So get some feedback on that. And think about how that's going to change the way that you play and how you're going to be building your army. Okay. Does that make sense so far? And a, a quick note on like making your uh, campaigns and getting feedback. Just always know that the first campaign you make isn't going to be as good as you think it is, but that's just part of the learning experience. Uh, I know a lot of us play, you know, games like D&D and stuff as well. It's just, you know, the first character you ever made, the first time you ever DM'd, it probably didn't go as well as you thought it would, but, you know, the next time you get into it, you just get a little better, you get that feedback, and it's the same with making narrative campaigns. The more you do it, the better it gets. Or a podcast. <laughs> yeah, or a podcast. <laughs> we're, uh, we're still working on that one. Yeah, and definitely being, if you're organizing something like this, being receptive to feedback is very important because, as Maniple said, all of your contributing factors might kill it for some players or make it very beneficial to others. So finding a, a balance is going to take a lot of time. So then uh, Planet Strike was another version of this where it focused on a different way of fighting. So now you have uh, actual in, uh, scenarios that are based around invasions. When you're <clears throat> coming from out of the skies and dropping into a new war zone, there's going to be a whole set of different different things. And you might run the scenario where your first one is a desperate fight where you're trying to establish a beachhead and then expand out and then take over something that the enemy has. And this might focus more on your troops that can fly, that can redeploy, that can scout, that can deep strike, you know, all those sorts of things. And the other force, the defensive force, is going to be much more heavily focused on using barricades, fortifications, buildings, that sort of thing. In most of our games in Horus Heresy, we haven't yet used any fortifications. But a scenario like this might gift the defensive player some of those for free and then give the stratagems to the people that are uh, doing the invasion. So you balance that out where you still bring your 2,000 point list, but one gets a couple free fortifications, other player gets a few stratagems, and that sort of balances it out a little bit. So again, you're, you're taking... The basic rules that are in the Horus Heresy book, and you're using them to, to drive the campaign uh, and, and drive the narrative uh, of the event. And these are not based on having to keep track of a map or a spreadsheet or anything. It's just taking three or four battles that are linked, trying to show um, the, the course of a, camp, of, a, of a campaign. And it provides a lot of opportunities for heroic moments and to give a character a name because they actually achieved something. And I found when I played one them like this, there's some really memorable events that go on in there. So what would you think of running multiple campaigns overlapping one another? And what I'm getting at is you have your, you know, the, these would all be set in the same era, but you could have a Horus Heresy campaign 
that is kind of your main line, but you could also have a Titanicus campaign and a Battlefleet Gothic campaign running in tandem, the the results of the battle, the outcome of those battles would affect your heresy campaign. Like, you know, if your if your Battlefleet Gothic game is able to run a blockade, maybe it gets you extra munitions or some kind of free upgrade for your heresy or your Titanicus event. What do you, what do you, what do you say to that? I mean, definitely. I mean, and we've talked about this before, and I think last time we talked about Battlefleet Gothic was linking those games together. And I get I get shivers and chills when I think about how awesome that would be. In practice, it's hard unless your game group is pretty devoted to knowing the rules. A lot of the guys that I play with can only focus on one set of rules at a time, and it gets too confusing for them to switch from one system to another. But if, if we were back down in Texas for a week and had time to play all three of those games, man, I would love that. That would be game Valhalla for me. Uh, it's kind of like Manipul was saying at the beginning. Four games is a good campaign, you know. So the more complexity you add, the less likely you're going to get through it. It would be cool, though. It's a lot to commit to, but it could be awesome if you if you really got the ball rolling on that. And another thought that I had is when you're organizing something like this, if you're trying to cram all these mechanics into one setting, it can be so much to track and and keep organized. It could overwhelm anyone, so it's it's a lot to ask for, but could be awesome in execution. Yeah, you would just need a, a player base that's ready to make that commitment. Well, it's kind of like he was saying, if we had a weekend, I think the four of us would probably have a pretty good shot at doing a, a short campaign like that, where we just meet up and we all rock out nine games. <laughs> but yeah, we'll have to see. Okay, so if you can find any of those old um, expansion books, Planet Strike, Cities of Death, or any of, anything of those old campaign books those are well worth the, the the few bucks they might they might cost you some of them are going up in price now so if that's the sort of thing if you find in your bargain bin at your um, local half price books or used bookstore grab those right away another one of my favorites is an old warhammer book called the general's compendium and there have been a lot of books that came out with that name this one i think was printed in well the price tag is 25 dollars, so that tells you how long ago that was and this one was written by eric sarlin and jeremy v talk and copyright 2003 so this goes back a little ways now this one was fun because it talked about um, all sorts of different linked campaigns it gives examples of how to just make a simple ladder campaign like i mentioned you just have game one game two and game three each of those with the either an increasing or decreasing point value and you can link those three together with another three where one benefits the other one. So depending on who won something, they might get a benefit in going into the next game. You want to be careful about win creep, though, because if one player wins, gets a benefit, goes on to get a win again and get another benefit, the other player is going to feel like they got, they got shafted. So sometimes what you want to do is make sure that that benefit is not really going to greatly unbalance the game or give that player an unfair advantage. But maybe gives them access to a different kind of troop. Maybe it lets them get a reroll on their deployment zone or get to uh, add an extra piece of terrain. Something that's helpful, but not completely soul-crushing. 
Likewise, sometimes players will actually give the points benefit to the player that lost, uh, so they have a chance, a better chance next time. Yeah, I was going to say a lot of um, the systems will incorporate something. I'm trying to think of how to explain it. They would have some sort of like metric that you can value armies at, whether it's like point to point cost difference, and you gain triumphs to somebody who's an underdog player or some sort of bonus like that would help play it out. Uh, I remember with games like Mordheim, even losers would get experience at the end of games for their teams. They just wouldn't get as many, and they wouldn't get as much gold, but they could still keep up. They wouldn't get completely left in the dust, stuff like that. Yeah, and something else this book does is that for the campaign, it introduces a bunch of random events. So for your own campaign, you could sit down and just write out, you know, six. you can do six or you can do 11. Uh, different random events so if you do six and you're just rolling a d6 to see what happens in the midst of the game so it might mean that in the next game there's going to be a weather event which might cause more terrain to be difficult or maybe there's fog rolling across the field that, that blocks line of sight if you roll 2d6 that gives you 11 results so you know they might think of 11 things that could happen in between the games and these could be good things or bad things or just simply random events and there's a lot of inspiration in here for for that sort of uh, for those sorts of tables. Likewise, they give some very interesting rules for setting up your armies. There's one where they actually show how the players have hung a curtain over the middle of the battlefield, and everybody sets up their army in secret. Once you finish setting up your army, the curtain is removed, and then you see what the other player has done. That can be a pretty interesting way to kind of play out the fog of war in a, in a campaign and add a little bit of um, chaos to uh, freshen things up a little bit. Have you guys seen anything else like that that really kind of twists the way that we set up or play the game? Yeah, I've seen stuff. I remember like the old Rogue Trader rule books had a DM that actually officiated over games. So while the two players were mapping out their turns, the DM could say, oh, well, here's, you know, a an NPC team shows up and here's a monster on the middle of the table that's going to move erratically. So you could have sort of uh, in-world effects happening on the table while you play. That might be an interesting thing to look into for a campaign. Those can be really interesting and they really change how the, the game works. I remember a game I played a long time ago in War Machine was there was like a, a big sinkhole in the middle of the, in the middle of the board and every turn, or at the end of every turn, every model would get pulled toward the center because they're all sinking in the middle of the board. And then uh, the the closer into the center of the board you got, the harder it got to move out. So, and you know, if you have an objective somewhere in there, it's like you had to stay close, but it was really difficult to. And it's a really interesting effect. And in the book too, it had these little cards you could photocopy that were a little ticket you could cut out that was a grudge match ticket if you had a player that was really kicking your rear end you would write out a little grudge match note to him hand it to him and he had to play you in the next game at a disadvantage because during the course of a campaign you would build up grudge points against anybody who beat you and you could then turn those grudge points into some sort of benefit and the grudge match would um would then be for all the for all the cards or whatever the last prize was and I like that idea of uh, building up a grudge against a particular army that's been against you. Like I, I've been beat by the Ultramarines every time. I'd love to have a grudge match against Ultramarines and really stick it to them. And that would be a, a fun way to really 
feel more invested in the campaign. Now, the the next piece I want to talk about is, so you've got this idea of world building. You've got the idea of a ladder campaign where you're just doing some uh, scenarios in order. Now you might get want to have the idea of, of building a map. Now, the map-based campaigns are a little more uh, in-depth and better for more players. The map campaign doesn't make really sense for two players, but if you have three, four, five, and you're getting into like a larger gaming group, a map could be really fun. Now, in the old days, what we used to do was just take the stuff called graph paper, and on graph paper, you would draw squares, uh, or if you're really fancy and you played a lot of uh, Battletech, you had hex paper. And you could use the hex paper to draw out a map that would be the different areas of the city or the planet that you're fighting on. And those were your player territories. Now, where this was done very well was first in a little book called Mighty Empires for Warhammer. And then there was Planetary Empires came out about a year later, which was the 40K version. The rules are almost the same. And if you can't buy the book, I'm sure the PDFs are online somewhere. The amazing thing about this Mighty Empires book is that it's about um, 20 pages long, but that's because it's in six different languages. AP, does that make sense to you? What is that? Mighty Empire. (laughs) Is that Japanese? Yeah, that's Japanese. (laughs) Okay, yeah. There's a whole, it's probably backwards on the camera here. (laughs) That's interesting. But But the actual rules, the rules for it are only one, two, three, for five pages. Uh, yeah, five pages. And what this does is they had these little uh, tiles that if you don't find them, you could actually 3D, 3D print them. You click them together, you can paint them. And then each of those gets a particular sort of a building, like a manufactorium or a, a generator. And those will have different effects on the campaign. So once you've built the map and they're rules for building the map, you put down the power stations and the command bastions and the shield generators and all that sort of stuff. And you have your starting territories yourself. Then every time you fight a battle against another player on the map, you can choose to absorb one of the map tiles. And if it's close to you, you have a better chance than getting one that's far away. So you'll start to gradually increase your, your territory. And if you have larger territories, you'll start to generate more points but there's also a tax on you when you go into a battle because your forces are spread thin over a large empire. And that's kind of the catch-up mechanic. That the players who have fewer uh, tiles to guard, their forces are more concentrated. But the idea is that you play until you've conquered 10 tiles. So that's going to be about eight games, uh, probably more, because presumably that you lose some of them. And then the, the map is then held together um, uh, until the players are, are done playing. So you can do this on uh, with pencil and paper. You can do it with the map tiles, which are really sweet if you can find them. And having that map, I, I remember listening to a, a podcast many years ago where there was a, a, big, a big game store that was running one of these map-based campaigns. And the guy who was telling the story was on the good guy side. I think he, there were... They were the uh, like uh, space marines and imperial units and that sort of stuff, and they had the map hanging on the wall, and they have an idea of because the the players would not announce who they wanted to fight against until the next day. 
So they would get a piece of paper that had a challenge on it that said, I want to play you here. And the guys were looking at the map saying, I think Gazcool is going to be coming from the north because he wants that Manufactorum. He's a really tough opponent, though, but I think with my Imperial Fists, I can take him out. So I'm going to go ahead and move my army up there in case he attacks. And the guys are sitting there trying to predict what the enemy uh, movements are going to be on the map. And because they were able to really think about that and, and build their strategy, they were able to get better results later on because they really thought hard about where things were at and what they thought the enemy might do. I think having that physical resource, like a map to tell players like where they're fighting and the resources of what they're fighting for is very important to the, to the narrative setting. Yeah. It helps you visualize a lot of things and actually a, a quick hack um, because a lot of this stuff isn't, you know, published anymore. So you're digging through old stuff or finding 3D printing. Um, but if you just need it on the cheap, Settlers of Catan actually works really well for Planetary Empires because it's the same hex-shaped tiles with terrain features on them. You basically just find some little, like, meeple building-looking things for, you know, factories, and it's functionally the same. And, you know, a lot easier for people who don't have access to stuff like 3D printing to get into. Yeah, and it saves you the trouble of throwing away your Settlers of Catan game after you played it one time. I don't know what you're talking about. I got the Longest Road. I hate the Longest Road. Well, speaking of Longest Road, the, my last resource I pulled out was another Warhammer uh, book. This was the Lustria campaign. And my friends, back in the old days, GW was kicking out these campaign books left and right for 40K and, and Warhammer. And they're even giving them away free in White Dwarves. There were so many little campaign books that were just a few bucks. Uh, the problem with the ones they're putting out now, they're so expensive. And it's 80 pages of fluff and 10 pages of rules. And that really bugs me. These old ones are jam-packed full of painting guides, how to build scenery, um, every aspect of building your campaign. And there's so much good stuff in here. Get them if you can't. This one had a very interesting way of building your map because in Lustria, it was a, a jungle and the terrain was very, very difficult. So you would just take a piece of paper and draw a bunch of circles on it in kind of random places. And then you would connect them by lines. And these were called your routes of march. And the routes of march were very limited because the jungle was so dangerous, you could only go on some very uh, limited areas to move around the map. And so you would start in control of one of these nodes and maybe a couple of the pathways. And you not only have to fight over the next node you're going to, but you'd have to maintain the pathway as well. And the paths could be very dangerous. And when your armies was moving from one to the next, things could happen to you along the way. So in a 40K version of this, maybe you're fighting on a volcanic world, or maybe there's some sort of atmospheric disturbance where you can't use your flyers and you're you're, you have to take a certain, maybe like a highway through the wastelands to get where, where you need to go. And that makes you subject to a bunch of raiders or, or something like that. You're again, you're finding ways to make the map drive the narrative. And in this case, if you worked really hard, you could build new routes of march, but that would take points away from your campaign or you'd have to win a battle in a certain fashion in order to get that route of march. But it would create these interesting bottlenecks where players were having to come together from different areas, fighting over one one node that would, op would open up a new part of the map, but whoever controlled that would control the whole 
uh, flow of the, the rest of the campaign. So I really liked how Lustria made it a different way to think about the map and make the routes and the areas between them much more, much more interesting. This one also introduced a couple of different army lists and a bunch of different uh, magic items. So in your Horus Heresy game, you could use that as a way to invent a new relic, or maybe you introduce a new character with, a, with an interesting rule. And these are all things you can do in a campaign that because you're not playing competitively, you could have some stuff that seems a little OP or a little broken or a little, but you have to fight for it to keep it on the map. And that sort of helps to balance it out a little bit. Very cool. I really enjoy these plundering the vault segments where you're going to take old campaign material. Well, I guess any kind of old material and adapt it into uh, the modern Horus Heresy setting. So this is a lot of fun. Thanks, Manipal. Yeah. And I really thought about it because in the base book, you really don't have that many options. There's only six deployment deployments in six scenarios. So you need to think cleverly about different ways to play the game. And you can take those basic scenarios and just adding in something to do with the map or some interesting piece of terrain can change how that, that whole game plays. And don't be afraid to, to take a scenario from another game system and port it into Horus Heresy. There's ways to do that that are, that are easy enough to figure out. Yeah, I think that's a good take. And I know something that Brandon has talked about in previous episodes is that there's been a little bit of a player drop off because guys aren't bringing it. They're, they're getting burned out on the, they don't have the the right components to build the the units they want to run like chain axes for world eaters and sons of Horus and other components like that. But doing a narrative campaign like this and giving a reason for guys to keep showing up and playing the game is, uh, I think a, really solid way of doing that. You're not just looking for a pickup match. You're, you've got this kind of weekly obli- obligation to keep uh, showing up at the shop for more heresy games. So it's it's a great strategy. And when we get into Fulgrim's Quest, I'll have a few more uh, notes to talk about building unique terrain for your campaign as well. So I'm happy to talk about that when, we're, when we get there. Right on then. So let's move on to our Fulgrim's Quest. I don't want to get too long in the tooth here. We Getting into our Fulgrim's Quest segment, we're going to be talking about building boards and terrain for all sorts of different occasions. And, you know, our, our current expert here is none other than Maniples. So if you want to give us just a little more on uh, what, what that looks like on your end. Actually, I, I want to kick this back to Paul because he just finished building a board and I want to hear how his process, how he uh, put that one together. Yeah, I just finished my gaming table, although the terrain's not on it right now. Um, yeah, I mean, there's kind of a spectrum that you can go from, from you know, a kitchen table with a tablecloth and Tupperware and solo cups for terrain all the way up to something that you'd see with like Zorpazorp, where he created the entire city of Osgiliath, you know, in 28 millimeter scale, which as amazing as that uh, looks is probably not the easiest thing to uh, store and transport. So generally speaking, when it comes to the tables, I find keeping it simple is better, especially with like the buildings and stuff, the more filigree and buttresses and, random windows and stuff you put on it the harder it is to define like the boundaries of buildings so i kept the buildings pretty square pretty simple i didn't do a whole lot with the actual table itself i ended up getting some printed neoprene mats for those i've definitely used tables that were like built up you know resin rivers and 
hills made out of sand and that sort of thing, or the, uh, the old GW ones that were printed with raised plastic. And those look great, but from a practical standpoint, they're a little harder to play on um, unless you texture them properly because models will slide. Um, so just going with a simple flat mat and square buildings just keeps it functional. Sort of function over form, really, is what I look for when I'm building a table. Yeah, I'd agree with that. That I I love buying terrain. I have so much of it haven't yet painted, but the idea of it, it sits in my mind, and I think I really want to have that table filled up with all that stuff. When I first got into, into terrain building, it was mostly for Warhammer, and I found a simple process for making uh, buildings out of foam core and just white glue. If you want to make some good buildings for 30k that are serviceable what i'd recommend is getting a little thin piece of of um, um, cardboard or cardstock and trace out a pattern of windows and doors on it that you like lay that over a piece of foam core get a sharp knife and just cut the windows out when you use your template then all those buildings are going to look the same so then when you cut them into sections then you are going to make an l shape or you make a u shape out of them you know, cut some of the corners off, and now you've with with a piece of black foam core and a little bit of um, uh, you know dry brushing, you've got a pretty serviceable battlefield. And I've fought on foam core buildings dozens of times, and I almost like that a little bit better because it kind of serves as a backdrop for the models. The models are the star of the show. With the fully figured uh, terrain that GW is putting out now, they can almost take over, and you're just looking at the terrain and not the not the models. So going simple is fine, and, and you could make that uh, set of buildings I just described for about $10 and have enough to fill up a 6 by 4 battlefield. Then you keep all your cutoffs, and you make those into little barricades and, and little things, and so you just you can use white glue, foam core, a little bit of gray paint, bing, bang, boom, you're done. Once you learn that, then you can make things more interesting, and you can build up that even further. The last really interesting board I built was with one of my buddies, uh, here in town and we did was we wanted to make an alien jungle so we first i got some mdf hardboard cut it into some different shapes usually between four to eight inches in diameter rough ovals circles uh, kidney shapes that sort of thing i had some pink expanded foam and some white glue and some sand we went down to hobby lobby and we bought a bunch of really alien looking flowers and decorations and little vines and uh, things that were interesting looking leaves and that sort of stuff and invested in one of the best hobby things on the cheap, a hot glue gun. And then we spent just a whole day just cutting up all this, this stuff from the floral, floral department, sticking them on little hills, uh, gluing the, the alien uh, plant stalks up growing out of the, the rocks carving the foam core, painting it, putting on a little sand and flock. And I think, again, that was that was done fairly cheap. I, I had gotten the, the most expensive thing was probably the MDF, the hardboard. But I, I found a big sheet of it sitting in the basement where I was living. I'm like, I'm just going to take this. And I think I'm still cutting on it. You know, a, a eight, a eight by four sheet of that will last you your entire gaming life. And so we then uh, uh, let it dry for a day and we fought a game with it. And it was the most fun because we had turned this pile of junk into a really sweet looking alien forest and got to play with our models on it. And uh, when I put uh, 
pictures up of our games, usually that's the terrain we're fighting on. So our next one is we're going to do something similar, but this time it's going to be some sort of a desert world. So we're going to find stuff that looks like cacti and scrubs and uh, a scrub, scrub brush and rocks and that sort of stuff. And we're going to make some sort of a desert planet. That's our next goal. Very cool. That sounds like a really fun way of putting a set of terrain together. You just pick a theme and then you, you could, you could even do it. Like you could challenge your buddy then you'd need to find a judge somewhere, but it'd be like, here's our budget for the day. Here's our theme. You need to, you know, go wherever, spend your budget and make the most of it. And then we'll have somebody grade us on, on how well we did, or, you know, we'll, kind of test it out against one another. That sounds like that could be a lot of fun too. What's your guys' take on the terrain rules in the Horus Heresy rule book? Are you very familiar with them? Uh, and it's not really coming to, into play for the games that I've played. Uh, off the top of my head, I don't remember them. <laughs> okay, so basically, if you have, uh, if your figure is 25% obscured, you get a six plus cover save. If you're in ruins, it goes to a five. If you're in a crater, it's a six. But if you if you are pinned, it goes to a four. There's difficult terrain that slows your movement by, movement by two inches. And then there's dangerous terrain that can kill you on a, on a dice roll. And then there are there's a whole page of rules for buildings. And this is where I wanted to go next. Because if you look at the rules, they clearly have a much wider set of rules for buildings. Because you've got fire points... It can take damage. It can be defended. You can climb it. You can put, uh, if there's statuary on it, it will give you guys a fearless rule. I guess statuary does that on its own, but I imagine there being like a, a temple with a statue on it, and those things are, are together. So if you want to get into more terrain building yourself, maybe you've got some plastic kits from UW. Maybe you've got some stuff you 3D printed. Maybe you've got some stuff from, from the craft store. Take a, really take a look at that and say, what would I want my centerpiece to be? Do I want to make like a giant tree trunk? Would I want to make a, a, a building that's manufacturing something with a, a tank rolling out of an assembly line? Set that as your goal and then just do some simple sketches of the floor plan, how high you want it to be. Think about the scale of your models. Do you want a tank to be able to, to fit inside? Are there walkways that your models can actually sit on? Will they fit inside? Um, if you pose a guy standing at the window, will his bolter peek out a little bit, or did you cut it too high? So think about what you want that building to look like. Make some little sketches, and then just go to town. One of the main problems I've had in the past is having a whole pile of plastic, but I don't want to use it yet because I haven't decided on the project I want to use it for. There's a YouTuber called Magrathea, Builder of Worlds, and he's got some amazing builds that he puts together. And one of the things he keeps saying is he's taken a saw to some rare piece of GW terrain. He says, boys, you've just got to use it. You've just got to use it. And he goes, <laughs> starts sawing this stuff up. But then at the end of the day, he's got a beautiful piece of terrain uh, for it, rather than just a bunch of sprues sitting in a crate like some of my stuff is. So... Uh, just dig in and build. You know, in a, in a year, GW will come out with another plastic kit that's even better than the last one. And you'll be happy that you got to play with the one when it was in season. Don't listen to him, boys. Hoard that shit like you're a dragon. <laughs> Paul, you talked about using the neoprene mats versus the built-up ones. 
What's been your experience with the neoprene? I really like them. I've got a three or four now. The nice thing about them is because they got a little bit of weight and grip to them, you can put them on a table and they don't shift. Uh, Brandon's got a set of the cardboard ones that GW made a couple whiles back, like the moon base ones. And they're nice. They look great. But the problem is, is because it's just cardboard on top of a table, you bump a corner and the whole table shifts over. So the neoprene, neoprene gives you a good print. They also clean pretty easily. I mean, it's basically, it's just mouse pad is what it is. It's just in a four by four instead of a little, you know, five inch thing. Um, and you can print anything on it. So if you can find a company that either prints custom on top or there's plenty like, I think flagship is what it's called, that make like pre-made custom printed table mats. They're just really nice. The other nice thing about them too is unlike the raised terrain ones where, you know, you're lugging four foot blocks of sand around these you can just roll up and it fits into a bag yeah i think that was a major win for the gaming sphere all over was how revolutionary those were because for the longest time i was playing on a four by eight piece of plywood and i had to you know sometimes i'd have to load it up in the back of my suv and haul it to a buddy's house and sometimes they would be flocked or they'd have sand on them. And if you're stacking them all up together, they'd get scratched or scraped. And then you'd have a bunch of sand or flock shit all over the floor of your shop and like, or your hobby shop. I mean, and, or uh, I, I used to play at a shop that it was a hobby slash comic shop. And we would set our boards up on top of the, like the long boxes for the comics. Like, after the store closed, we would have our our post. Uh, at the end of the day, the store would close, and we would have our gaming time. And we'd put our boards up on top of the long boxes, and if they were open on top, you'd be getting flocking shit down into the comic boxes. And so, finding a finding a way of this much more efficient way to store your game board, to have a cleaner overall space, and the the, the neoprene is so nice. Like your models you don't have to really worry about scuffing a model or, you know, if you drop something on one, it'll just bounce. Like you're not worried about chipping the paint. Like any of the old sisters of battle players that were lugging around these heavy pewter armies, looking at you, Maniple, uh, you don't have to worry about chipping your, your models because you're not playing on this hostile board, literally. So yeah, the, the neoprene mats are just chef's kiss. Very, very nice addition to the gaming sphere. And I'll say another word about when you build your own terrain, about the notion of perspective. The thing is that in the terrain that you're building, it's never going to be true to scale. For instance, if your space marines were fighting over a soccer field and you wanted to make a legit 28 millimeter soccer field, it probably wouldn't even fit in your house. And so all the battles that we're fighting are on this shrunk perspective where the only thing you want to scale your building to are things that the character is going to be standing next to naturally, like a door. If the door is the right size for the figure, then the whole building is going to look right. Likewise with the window. If the window is scaled to the character, it's going to look right. But you don't have to build an entire skyscraper to get the sense of large scale, because as soon as the eye looks at that, it's going to kind of fill, your brain will fill in the blanks and it'll say, okay, that's a tall building. But you, but in the, a lot of these games, the, the Marines are fighting over these enormous complexes 
which you couldn't build the whole thing, but you want to build those little individual pieces that they're standing next to to fool your brain into thinking that is a full-size piece of terrain. And so my friends, I, when I first started this terrain building process, I tried to build like full-scale cathedrals and barns and houses and stuff, and they just became, become too unwieldy. Focus on keeping things of a reasonable size and think about how you're going to pack it away. If you're going to be building that centerpiece model, build it in such a way that it will fit in the in the plastic box you have for storing it. Or make it modular so it comes apart in two pieces. That will help you immensely uh, down the line. Yeah, I definitely like the, the, the more modular setting. Or uh, definitely with the kind of the foam core buildings that you talked about. I remember I hung onto a bunch of those after you moved. And we played on those forever. Being able to stack them up in a single tote because they all kind of interlock was a very handy way of being able to move your gaming space from one place to another. And finally, when you're looking at your, your campaigns, uh, think about, and your maybe your friends are building your terrain together. Do think about that centerpiece model or your objective markers, the things that you're going to be fighting over all the time. Try to make those interesting. You know, think the rules say you can use just a coin to use an objective marker. My friends just get an extra base from one of your figures put a servo skull on it or a treasure chest or something and make it interesting. You'll, you have a much more time, but better time fighting over that than uh, a coin from the casino. Or if you want to be a shit poster, you can do like a, a wounded space Marine and paint them in your buddy's livery. So like I would probably paint a bunch up as dark angels or alpha legion or sons of Horus. And right, right. yeah, just trying to fight over a, a dead body. We've done that before. Yeah, I mean, this mirrors a lot of what we said back when we had the conversation with Brandon about basing. It, it's really just limited by your creativity. So whatever you can think of, you can do. It's just also learning to manage what you're going to be able to accomplish in a certain period of time and what you can handle having. I think that's definitely been a big problem for me and why I did stuff like swapping to the neoprene mats is it got to a point where I couldn't store a lot of the terrain I had. So I ended up having to parse down and looking for smaller options or more storageable options. Finding a theme or a setting that you want to concentrate on too is key. And I remember the most fun that Manipal and I have ever had was one winter we were stuck in our, our, you know, we were together for the holidays or something, but we just went out to our mom's garage and we started building an entire swamp village for Malifaux. And we were there for like a weekend. One of our buddies came out and hung out and, you know, we had it like a wood stove burning in the corner and we're just for hours out there building these little swamp shacks on stilts. And, you know, they all had like walkways that went, to, went together. It worked awesome for Malifaux. It was so cool. So yeah. like um, imagine. I, I, I still have that set. Oh yeah. And, it's and one our, of my favorites. Yeah. And our, I mean, we made it out of uh, popsicle sticks and foam core a little bit of brown paint and just whatever junk we had lying around. We made some really cool stuff. Yeah, it was, it was amazing. So what I'm getting at is like, imagine that factory floor, imagine that, that hangar deck that you just breached, uh, you know, you're boarding a starship or something. So it's a big open space, but it's got like cargo containers and parked vehicles or loaders parked all over the place. And it, it gives you this much more vivid environment to 
to, to play in, to work from. It's like, you're not always fighting out in the middle of the field or on a city street or something. And it just, it, again, it comes down to how much brain power you're going to put into this setting. And that can be, especially when you get into a groove, that can be where a lot of the fun is at. This is a very creative medium. We're not just talking about the models you're painting and assembling, but the world that you build around. All right. Well, thanks guys. Uh, that was a, a good conversation about, uh, boards and terrain i'm with uap uh, uh going to the neoprene changed my life i don't need to throw my back out hauling around those big heavy sheets of mdf and osb yeah it's it's uh that was a great development uh this has been a great discussion again thanks for lucas for coming on for that first half we're really sorry that his internet wasn't better feel free to check out the i will blast that link for ferrix the, the taking of ferrix out on our socials and look us up there on Twitter and shoot us an email at legioncast18 at gmail.com. And be ready for our next book episode coming out. Be ready for our next book episode. I think that's Descent of Angels. Brennan and I are going to be going over that. Looking forward to it. That'll be in a couple of weeks. Why don't you guys go ahead and say goodbye? Goodbye. Yeah, thanks for having me on again, guys. Uh, Fallen Angels is the next book. Fallen Angels. Sorry about that. Thanks for the correction, Paul. And since Brandon's not here, stumble in fortune. Mm-hmm.